Matthew chapter 10, we'll read from verse 24 through the end of the chapter. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet and the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And, <clears throat> and he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Well, let's pray. Our God, we lift our hearts to you this morning. We turn our thoughts away from the many legitimate things that would call for our attention at the beginning of another week. And we set them before you like a tribute set before a king. You are worthy. You are worthy for us to be preoccupied with your greatness with your preferences, your priorities, and not our own. We come to lay our praises before you today, but God, we want to lift your praises every day. The perfections of your nature and character, the infinite, indescribable, and incomparable worth that belongs to the one true God. Father, Son, and Spirit, 
Our minds are baffled at the mysteries that belong to you, but our hearts are thrilled. You are our creator. And by the mighty work of your son, applied through the Spirit's constant mercy, every believer here this morning and every believer around the world and every believer through the ages is able to say, my God, I am my beloved's and he is mine. We thank you for the unbreakable bond of love reaching us through the cross of Christ. We thank you for a love that predated our existence, that predated our parents or grandparents, that predated our nation, that predated the universe. You have loved us from afar. And with the cords of love you've drawn us, we have seen our need for a Savior, seen our need for washing and the removing of our guilt as we have lived against you. We have seen... We've even seen the need for a, a prophet who would teach us and deliver us from the imagined ideas of Christianity that so easily come to our own mind. And we have seen the need of a king who would rule, a people who have ruined themselves by self-rule, who would protect us, provide for us. So we come to you as subjects to a king, as worshipers to a god, as children to a father. We thank you, God, that the things that you have done are worth telling from generation to generation, from parent to child, grandparent to grandchild, to our co-workers and friends. God, we pray that the renown and the honor that belongs to Jesus of Nazareth alone, our great captain, would fill our thoughts and our conversations. Today, after the service, when we sit down and eat with each other, we ask that you would help our hearts to be mindful, help us to remember things that Christians can talk about together that no other people can talk about, and to use our time carefully. We pray tomorrow morning when we drive to work, we would live unto you, and that would be seen throughout the day. God, we ask that you would do this here, that your name might be exalted here. But God, we're asking you to do it everywhere. That every part and every corner of this globe, every city street and country lane, every religious gathering, every university, every sports stadium would be impacted by the rule of Christ. And that he would captivate countless, countless men and women and children. We pray that you would work in such a way today. That not just here, but everywhere that people gather around your word. That you would be their teacher. That you would stoop down like a parent to a toddler. And say things in a way that we can hear. Give us ears. Give us an opened heart clear eyes and speak in a way that is inescapable. Do a thing in us that is irreversible and do it, God, for the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, we return to Matthew chapter 10 this morning. The verses that Chuck read, we're only going to take verse 34 through 39 this morning. 
And we're going to look again at this whole issue of discipleship. You remember that when we think about following Christ, uh, being a Christian, one of the common descriptions of a Christian is a disciple. Not just the 12 disciples, but any believer, because we follow. So we, we view Christ in the scriptures. We try to understand what he's doing, why he's doing it. We listen carefully to his commands and take them as all authoritative today. And we imitate him. Discipleship is not so much us being a pupil in a classroom. You know, if you think of being in school or at college uh, and you've got your, you know, your pen and paper and you're listening to what the teacher says and you're writing everything down so you'll learn what you need to learn for the test. But discipleship is not really that kind of a relationship. It's much more of an apprenticeship where we are in a living, close, quartered relationship with Christ himself. And he is teaching us, molding us uh, in, in, a, in a kind of an on-the-job training setting. He is putting his hands over our hands and showing us how to do what needs to be done. He's showing us how to speak in a way that he would speak, how to feel about things the way he feels about them, what to think, what to, what to desire. And that affects everything. It, it affects how we live at home or at church or at work or, you know, on the ball field. Matthew chapter 10 is a chapter we've been looking at because it does describe, it, it gives more information than just about any other single passage about what it looks like to follow Christ, particularly as we go and represent him in a world that rejects him. And some of the things in Matthew chapter 10, you remember, some of these commands are specific to those 12 men and are not repeated throughout Scripture. So, for example, clearly when he says to them on this first missionary journey, I'm sending you to the Jews only, not to the Samaritans, not to the Gentiles. Well, that's a very specific command for that point in time. But later in the book of Acts, we see that God is sending the gospel to all the nations, to all kinds of people. And so that command was not general. But there are so many things in Matthew chapter 10 that are general principles that apply to every Christian. And that, in verse 34 through 39, we find quite a few of those. In verse 34 through 39, we've come to the end of the chapter and we're looking at the costs that are essential in following Jesus Christ in this life. And if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, if you're going to be a Christian in truth, you need to understand these costs, why they are there, so that when you start to feel the cost, you are not shaken off of the course of obedience. You're, you're not diverted misunderstanding the costs that are coming and thinking, well, this is happening because I, I must be doing it. I must be doing it all wrong. Rather than, these are the costs that are coming. Christ explained the nature of these. Why do they happen? And how are they part of loving Him? How are they part of loving the people around us who don't understand why we're living for Him? 
So in verse 34 through 39, we find further explanation of the response of the world to Christ when it encounters Christ in us and his claims through us. And it explains why this is happening so that we are prepared for them and we respond correctly. <clears throat> well, let's start with the command in verse 34. Verse 34 contains uh, the beginning of this clarification. What's going on? But the clarification is, is given to you in a command. This is not optional for the Christian life. If you are going to be a disciple of Christ, as much as if they were going to be disciples of Christ, you need to understand and obey what we find in this passage. So the command comes in verse 34. Do not think. Okay? So, of course, it's put in the negative. And Christ starts this way to get our attention. There are times in the ministry of Jesus where he explains something about himself that is so counterintuitive. It goes against what people think Jesus is or what, think, what they think Jesus has come to do. And going against what the common view of Christ is in such a way, he has to get our attention by using a phrase like this. Do not think this when you think about me. Do not think this way when you think about the Christian life. We see a number of passages where this shows up. I want to give you just a couple of examples. And you don't have to turn there. Let me just shoot them to you quickly. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, this is what Christ says. Uh, actually, it's John the Baptist preaching. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So people are coming to John to be baptized, and he says, you need to bear fruit that matches the claim to be a repenter. And do not suppose that you can say to yourself, well, we have Abraham for our father. So there's an example in the not in the ministry of Christ, but in John's ministry, where it, every Jew that comes to John and says, okay, well, we want to be baptized in preparation for the Messiah. John says something that just goes against everything they think. He is correcting a common religious misconception. Don't, whatever you do, don't think that being born a Jew means that you are okay with God. Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 5. Here Christ is speaking in the early part of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember this? Verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. So as we're reading all about grace and the free forgiveness that comes through the cross. Christ, the Lamb of God that fulfills all those ceremonies that we looked at in the old covenant. It might be a common misconception to think that Jesus Christ came to replace the law, the moral law, to replace what the prophets said, that we can just kind of set those aside now that Jesus is here. So because of that common misconception, Christ has to say, Make sure when you think of me and what I've come to do and what it looks like to follow me, make sure you do not fall into the trap of that common misconception that I came to do this because I didn't. John chapter 5 verse 45, Christ is preaching to the Jews who are rejecting him and he says this, do not think again that I will accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses. 
in whom you have set your hope. So the Jews are rejecting Jesus' claims. And maybe they would expect that he would say, on the end, at the end, you know, on the day of judgment, I will accuse you. I will stand against you at the judgment and accuse you to my father. And Christ says, don't think that I'm the one that's going to be standing there. Moses, the one you put all your hope in and you say, we follow Moses, not this Jesus fellow who just showed up. You know, we don't even know who he is. Moses, we know. You claim to, to trust Moses. You claim to be following the words of Moses. You are not. Moses spoke of the coming of Christ. They've rejected what Moses said. So Moses will be accusing you on that day. Now let's come back to Matthew 10. When Christ introduces a statement with this kind of formula, do not think that I came to, it is a great opportunity for the Christian to kind of put the brakes on and to ask ourselves, am I ready to adjust what I might have commonly, you know, along with others, what, what we might commonly think when we think of Jesus, the work of Jesus, and what it looks like to follow Jesus, are we ready to adjust all of that so that what we understand of Christianity fits what he says? Or are we prepared to doubt what Christ says to trust what we think and adjust his words to suit our ideas. It is a, it is a great mercy that Christ faces the crowds or, or says to his 12 disciples or gives us today, 2,000 years later, this kind of statement. Do not think that. So whatever comes next, realize that it was given to us to to deliver us from living our entire life following a Jesus that doesn't exist. You know, serving a Christ in a wrong way. Uh, well, my Jesus is this way. Well, but did you not pay attention? Well, I've grown up with this kind of tradition. You know, I grew up hearing this about Christ. Well, did you not see what he said? And we not only do we not want to be guilty of Wasting our lives following a Jesus that doesn't exist. We also don't want to be guilty of passing on a Jesus that doesn't exist to the next generation or to the person beside you this week. So great kindness. Do not think. Now, what are we not to think? Well, we need to understand his purpose and we don't need to misunderstand his purpose. And that follows the command. Do not think that I came to and here's the purpose, that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Three times we see the little phrase in verse 34 and 35, I came to. Do not think that I came to. Next, I did not come to. Next, for, because he's going to explain it in verse 35, for I came to. 
Christ explains the purpose in His coming. This is not all you can say about the purpose of Christ's coming. We have an entire Bible that explains all those facets. But this cannot be ignored and you still be a follower of Christ. Understand the purpose for why Christ came. Don't mistake it and let that affect the purposes for the way that we live. Christ three times explains his purpose, negatively and positively. I did not come to bring this. I did come to do this. And then he explains it. I came to. When Christ explains these things, obviously he's explaining his purpose in the context of the, res- of the, um, of the response of humanity to what he's doing. The response of, u- of humanity to his claims. And the fault, of course, ultimately lies with humanity. The rejection and the division and the the sword that he's talking about here, the lack of peace, ultimately it's because of our sin. Have you ever asked yourself why, if Christ comes to bring good news and if he sends us with the gospel, with the good news, why so often does he warn us That it is not a thing that will necessarily bring peace. It may bring a sword. It may set people against each other. Well, one of the reasons, of course, is that the good news that we tell, the good news that Christ preached, does include some bad news. It does include truths about us and truths about God and truths about life that we before we're Christians, we find it pretty unpalatable. We, we just can't seem to swallow it. We come to church, we hear the sermon, we read a, a little bit of the Bible during the week, perhaps we read religious books, we listen to religious podcasts, and it's like we, you know, we chew it for a while, but then we say, I cannot swallow that, and we just spit it out. Until God works in our hearts, even the good news is offensive to us. I mean, just think of it. We spend our entire lives giving ourselves, uh, kind of writing our story. And so, it, you know, we, people ask us all the time, you know, like, what's going on? And, and we give them the account of what's going on in our life. Well, I'm having trouble at work. Well, I'm having trouble with my kids. Well, I'm having trouble with my parents. Well, my school, you know, I go to a school. It's not a great school. My church isn't so good. And we, we tell them our sad tale of woe. And it has all been written in our handwriting But we do that with God too. And so when the truth comes to us, it it goes directly against the story we've written. And when God says things like this, the problem with you and the things that you're suffering, the problem is on the inside of you. It's not outside of you. And the cure for your life is not inside you, it's outside of you. And that's the opposite of what we've been saying. We always think that Somebody else isn't giving us what we're entitled to. And if life were just different, we'd be happier. So the problem is all here. Maybe even the problem is there with God. But the problem is not here. And then we think, well, I can fix this because the the cure is here. Not there. And when the gospel comes and the bad news is explained that actually the problem is not just what you do. It's what you are. It's, It's what you prefer. That you would rather rule yourself than God rule you. You'd rather present your, you know, as we mentioned in our prayer meeting this morning, 
uh, you know, it's like we, we live in this cesspool, this spiritual sewer. And when we see there's a problem with this, when, if anyone ever points out that there's something dirty about our souls, you know, we, we reach down into the cesspit and we pull out a dirty towel. We try to scrub ourselves up with it. We, we don't get any nicer. When the desperate need of your soul is presented to you, And the offensiveness of your sin in God's sight as something that you've been doing against him is presented to you. And the hopelessness of your very best efforts, even your religion, is presented to you. Then you have two options. Either you break your heart and you turn to that king in repentance and you put all your hope in his mercy. Or you become angry and you reject those statements. Well, that may be true of so-and-so. Well, that certainly is what those people needed to hear. But I'm not that bad. And you stick with your story. And you continue to try to fix yourself. And you reject the claims of Jesus. Now, Christ has told us earlier in chapter 10 that there's going to be this unpleasant dynamic that when the believers or these original disciples tell people about Christ, that there are times where living for Christ, being a picture of Christ, smelling like Christ, talking like Christ would have you talk, that the world will not appreciate that and it will reject you and it will misunderstand you and misrepresent you and it may mistreat you. So be prepared. But now in verse 34, there is something new added. And that is, it is not just that the world doesn't like to hear the truth about itself, And the truth about Christ and his claims. It is that Jesus Christ has purposefully, intentionally come to create a problem with us. And he's not the problem, we're the problem. But he has come to disturb our peace. And he's come to break up our human unity. And how are we supposed to understand that? What is it about Christ and what is it about humanity that makes it essential that if he is going to rescue your soul, he has to trouble it first and he has to create some divisions first. Now, I want us to understand before we even look at that, that When Christ says that he comes not to bring peace, but a sword, and the sword here is a picture of strife. You can think of war, strife, and division. So I haven't come to bring peace. And the word peace here in verse 34, or the the verb, I did not come to bring peace. The little, the translation here in the New American Standard, to bring, is a word, it means to cast like a net. All right? I didn't come, Christ said, To just throw a giant blanket of peace over all the earth. I actually came to bring a sword. I came to trouble you and to divide you. Why? Well, this isn't the ultimate goal of Christ. If we think of things that people do, purposes, what's your purpose in this? We can have what the philosophers call the subordinate goals or a subordinate purpose, and we can have an ultimate purpose. And there may be a lot of subordinate purposes before there's the ultimate. That sounds 
fussy, but let me give you an explanation. A subordinate goal is something that you do. It's a goal. You know, we kind of think of uh, breaking up a big, a big plan. Like, okay, so I want to graduate from college, or I want to be successful here, or here, or here. And we say, well, there's going to be a lot of steps that are required, right? Yeah, I need to be reasonable. So I need to do this, and this, and this. And there's a lot of little things that need to be accomplished to ultimately accomplish the big thing. And that's what we're talking about. A subordinate goal is something that you want to accomplish... And it may be good in itself, but its real value is in what it ultimately is a part of accomplishing, something better than itself. And an ultimate goal is something that is accomplished and it's good, and it's not good because it leads to something better. It is the ultimate good. So, for example, simple illustration, a wedding day ceremony is good. There's joy and, you know, the friends are together, the family's together, the bride and the groom come together. It's what they've been waiting for. They they plan so much for this. Everybody's pitched in. It is a good thing. It's a happy occasion. But if it didn't lead to something more, if it did not lead to a life of love between this boy and girl, then that ceremony is cheapened. The great worth of the wedding ceremony is that we are hoping that it leads to something even greater. Christ does not come to disrupt our peace and divide us because that's his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is that he would exalt his father in saving the sinner. But to save the sinner... He has to disrupt the peace and bring a sword or divide. Now, when we think of Christ and the gospel, we generally think of him as the Prince of Peace, right? Isaiah 9, we studied this recently. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So he's the Prince of Peace. He's been given the rule of all the cosmos. All the the galaxies are his. And there will be no end to that rule. And there will be no end to the peace that he ultimately brings. How can he say in Matthew chapter 10... Don't be mistaken, guys. I'm sending you out with the gospel of peace. But don't get confused. I'm not really here to bring peace. I'm actually here to bring a sword. I plan to start a war. In other places, we connect Christ with peace. Luke chapter 1. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is born. Zacharias knows that John will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 1, he says this about the Messiah. He will come to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. How can the one who said, who, of whom it said, he will come to shine on the way of peace so that you can walk that path. How can it be said here, I did not come to bring peace. Don't think that. Luke chapter 2, a little later. 
the angels at the birth of Christ, a great multitude of heavenly hosts appeared in verse 13. They were praising God and they said this, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is well pleased. How can the Bible say that the angels declared this, the shepherds heard it, that Christ has come and peace among men is the result. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes to the Greeks and the Jews who are meeting together for the first time. These two groups have come together. And Paul writes and talks about peace. He mentions peace in a number of ways here. Listen closely. For he himself, Christ, for he himself is our peace. Who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man. Jew and Gentile are united. It's, they're part of, it's like they're one new person, one new bride, one new kingdom. Thus, establishing peace. And that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. And peace to those who were near. We could go on. There's a lot of examples. But let me ask. How can Christ say, I did not come to bring peace. When so many passages say, he is coming to bring peace. How do you handle that, that, that uh, paradox? Well, I'll give you the short answer in case you pass out in the middle of the sermon and don't get it. And here's the short answer. It's found in Ephesians. It's found in the other places. It's found in Romans 14 where it says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. That's not what Christianity is about. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Christ has come... To disrupt peace so that he can give real peace. And that peace is given to everyone who gladly embraces this perfect king and savior's rule. So in his kingdom, peace and joy and righteousness. Outside of the kingdom, where we stand claiming that we can fix ourselves and we can rule ourselves better than he can. No peace. In Isaiah 48, God says this, and he says it again later, but it's a, quite a terrifying statement. And it's, it's all, it's universal, it includes all of us. There is no peace for the wicked. Now, there we have it. Christ comes to bring peace. There is no peace for the wicked because they reject Christ. And he's the only way of peace. So why does he say, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. I came to disrupt the peace. Well, I think the answer is hidden in this issue of our false peace. Christ comes to destroy this false sense of peace that all of us have gladly clung to. And some of you are still clinging to. And he comes to destroy the false peace so that he can show you where you can find real peace. 
Let me give you an illustration. It is bad, we would all agree, it is bad to have a life-threatening cancer and not to know about it. It is bad to be in trouble with the law. There's an APB out on you, you know, if the police pull you over because you did a rolling stop at the stop sign and they pull your name up on their computer, they find out that actually you're wanted uh, by the law, you're to be arrested because you're in trouble with the law. It's bad to be in trouble with the law and not know it. It is bad to be in a marriage that's falling apart. Your spouse is so unhappy that they're planning on leaving you and you're clueless. Those are bad. Let me give you worse. It is worse to have a cancer and know about it and then go to the doctor and the doctor, because they are your friend, they don't want to say something to upset you, they don't give you the bad news. And they tell you, don't really worry about it. I don't think it's anything that you should be concerned about. And that is much worse than just having cancer. Because by giving you a false sense of peace, they have stolen the opportunity, that precious window of time that you had, to medically deal with it. It is bad to be in trouble with the law, but it is much worse when you go to your lawyer because you find out you're in trouble with the law and you hire a lawyer, but the lawyer is lazy. He doesn't really care enough about you to do much. And he tells you he doesn't think it's going to be a problem. Leave it with him. He's going to call the judge or he's going to talk to the prosecuting attorney and the, other, the folks that are against you and he'll get the whole thing dropped and you, you have a sense of peace. You say, Phew, thanks, man. Thanks for handling that. And you go home thinking that you are right with the law and you are not right with the law and the man doesn't do what he says and the next thing you know, you're getting things in the mail saying that you are in contempt of court and now you know you're going to be arrested. Much worse because if the lawyer would have told you the truth, you could have shown up at court, you could have made things right. It's bad when you're in a marriage where the spouse is so unhappy they're thinking of leaving you, but it's worse when you start to notice that and you ask them, is, is something wrong? Are, are we okay? And they don't want the fight and they don't want the, you know, the tears and the arguments and they just say, yeah, no, 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 everything's great. And they lie to you. That false sense of peace comes and steals the precious time you had to repair the relationship. A false peace is what we prefer, but the amazing thing is, it's often at church that a false peace is what you're given. Jeremiah chapter 8, God is speaking about false preachers in the old covenant, could clearly apply that in the new covenant, and this is what he said. They, these false prophets, heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially. He's not talking about atheists talking to other atheists. He's saying preachers, priests, prophets talking to the people in the synagogue or at the temple have healed their broken lives superficially. Band-Aid. Saying this, saying peace, peace. But there is no peace. If you want to make the 
problem of our nation and our nation's church is worse. Just be the next person in line that when someone tells you about the problems of their life, you give them a superficial cure because of, you know, you care about them and they're going through a hard time. You don't, you feel like I don't want to make it harder by saying what needs to be said. And so you just say, peace, peace, you know, it's going to be okay. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. And in giving them a false peace and avoiding an unpleasant truth, you misrepresent God and you steal the precious opportunity they had for repentance. So Christ comes not to bring, not to cast like a blanket, a net, a giant universal peace over the planet. Because in disturbing our false peace, it is really a kindness that he shows us that things aren't okay. Another thing is that he does create a division. He brings strife. So he doesn't just throw a blanket of peace. He does create strife. And here he talks about it in the family. But let's think about the strife. Humanity is not a particularly united group of people. As a race, humans aren't united. We are divided. We divide over everything. It's an expression of our selfishness. I mean, you cannot have a united race of people when every one of those people thinks that they're the king or the queen of the universe. You know, it just doesn't work well. Somebody's got to not be the king. And when you come to humanity, you find that we divide over big things like religion and politics or little things that are so insignificant. It would be impossible to list all the things that we divide over. But we are united in one matter. There is an exception. We are a united race in our rebellion against God. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? Why is it that everyone seems to be united? Well, they have a purpose, a plan. What's the plan? Let us cast his fetters, his restricted bonds, God's chains, these commands that won't let me do what I have a right to do. Let me throw those off and, and we all get together. And humanity is agreed on this apart from God's grace. Every one of us, it shows up in different ways. We don't all want to do the same things. We don't all want to be selfish in the same way. Some of us look at other people's selfishness and it disgusts us. And then other people look at our type of selfishness and they're disgusted. So don't let the externals confuse you. There is a perfect unity in every unsaved, unregenerate, unrepentant, unbelieving person ever. It doesn't matter what language you speak or college you went to. It doesn't matter what you look like. You are united in your determination not to let God boss you around. You see this at the university. You see this in Washington or London or Moscow. You see this among the rich. You see this on church pews. There is a determination to, in some fashion, keep my right to rule me. And we're united. It is a great mercy of Jesus Christ that he comes and he brings a division. He makes strife where there used to be a type of unity. But the unity 
was a unity of self-destroying spiritual rebellion. Traitors united against one enemy. You know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So it doesn't matter what those people, how they live or what language they speak or what church they go to, mosque, Hindu, doesn't matter. As long as they are, like me, a live and let live people, we will rule ourselves. Christ comes to this humanity that is united in one thing, and it's treason against its God, and he comes to create division between them. He must destroy this false sense of peace. He must divide us in our soul-destroying unity. And he does. The claims of Jesus Christ, the explanation he gives us about what we really are like under the surface, behind the mask, it comes to a people, and when it comes, it bothers us. It disrupts our sense of peace. And some people embrace it, and other people reject it. And those that embrace Embrace Christ, they're changed. Alive in Christ now. They believe Him more than they believe their feelings or more than they believe their television set. They live for a king. They obey Him. They love Him. They are grateful to Him. Like Paul said, they are compelled now by the love of this new king, this Savior. They are compelled to live differently. They cannot go back. As Paul says in Romans 6, to the old master of self and sin. And when that happens, there's a division. Those that are not changed, look at the changed person. And they think, what's wrong with you, man? You used to be this way. You used to be so much fun. You used to be this way. And now you're different. And they are offended because they feel it. You are living for that Jesus. Why? And you say in as nice a way as you can, because he is who he said he is. And they are offended because they know what that says about them. So you're saying, I'm rejecting the God-man, that I'm rejecting the Savior, that I'm rejecting the rightful Lord. And no matter how humble and gentle, if you live and speak the truth, no matter how loving, it is offensive. And... A division is created that just becomes more and more obvious as the Christian grows in Christ-likeness and those people around the Christian continue to reject the claims of Jesus Christ. It happens everywhere. It happens at work. Happens at college. Happens in churches. And Christ is going to mention that it also happens in homes. Now, That explains why Christ has to come with this strange purpose. Why do you come instead of bringing peace and unifying? Why did you come to disrupt peace, create division? Well, it was mercy. We'll talk about how that applies to the Christian in a minute. But let's go on to verse 35 and 36 and look at the cost. The cost is real and often it is expensive It often costs you in ways that are most dear to you. And you must be prepared for this if you're going to follow Christ. You must understand the purpose behind it. And you must understand the worth of your Savior. Well, the cost that is mentioned in 35 and 36 
is the family, the, the breaking up, the division in a family. The, there is a family that appears to be very peaceful, at least with themselves. There's loyalty to each other. You know, they're united. They're happy. And then the gospel comes and there's a break. And at least one of them is following Christ now and the others are confused. And a division grows. Why does Christ mention family here? Why does he say, I came to set a man against his father? And a daughter against her mother? A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law? And a man's enemies will be the members of his house? If you look at Luke and Mark where the same things are being taught, there's more material added, but this is the summary of it. Why does Jesus say, I came not to bring peace, but a sword to bring agitation, to break up the peace, to bring division? And this is what I, and he gives an example. This is what I'm talking about. When I come, grown men are going to turn against their fathers and daughters against their moms and daughter-in-laws against mother-in-laws. In fact, if you look around in your family, look down the pew you're sitting on, if your children are next to you, or, or your siblings, or your parents, or grandparents, you may not all be at peace with each other. There may be a division. And even though you're polite to each other, and you still care about each other, there is a division that you just can't cross. And if push comes to shove, when the claims of Christ are brought to bear, you are against the members of your family that are Christian. This happens in marriages. It is so costly. When you love Christ. And those that you love most. Don't love Christ. And the sword of Christ. Comes between you. Now I think we have to be really careful here. We are not saying. That this division. Um, is started. Or, or exists. Because the Christian looks at the unbeliever now with disgust. Oh, I didn't know how bad you were. I'm now clean. I don't really think I should be around a bad person like you. Children who embrace Christ, children, you know, 18 and under, you're living in your mom and dad's house, you're living on your mom and dad's paycheck, and you ought to be grateful, and you owe them love and respect, but when you become a Christian, the enemy will come along and say to you, wow, you're a child of the king now, but your parents reject the king. So you have a right to be disgusted and frustrated with them. And it comes across in the way you talk to them. And they want nothing to do with the Jesus that you claim. And it may not be because they don't love Christ or they're rejecting his claims. It may be that they don't love the way you're acting now. And they assume that if you act this way, that's the way Christ is. When Paul writes in the New Testament to married couples... And one of the spouses is converted hearing the gospel. So they're already married. You know, they never even knew about Jesus Christ. There they are, this happy Roman couple serving their little gods. The gospel comes. The false peace is broken up. The united marriage is rattled because one embraces the claims of Christ and one rejects the claims of Christ and the one that embraces the claims of Christ is told, you are not to leave that unbeliever because they don't love Christ. You stay with them. God may use you as a tool to bring them to love Christ. Who better? But if the unbeliever, despising the Christian, 
and the Christian's new lifestyle leaves you, you are free from guilt. If it is Christ-likeness that shoved them out or made them run away and not your arrogance. I had a friend in Wales. Um, he became a friend. He, I was preaching at a university in Glamorganshire, this little place in Wales. And I didn't want to go there. I was very busy. And um, I was behind on my work. I was doing a lot of preaching and not a lot of library work by my own happy choice. I thought I would rather preach than study in that library any day, you know. So I was neglecting the PhD and enjoying preaching. And so, uh, you know, eventually I kind of looked at myself in the mirror and thought, uh, you're not here to preach primarily. You're here to do your PhD. So I cut back all the speaking engagements at that time that I could, but I had one that I'd promised I would do, and so I couldn't drop it. I got on the train and went to this little place in the middle of Wales, and I spoke on the existence of an afterlife. I mean, you know, Britain doesn't believe anything hardly, so I was speaking to these lost college kids about, is there life after death? And after the sermon, uh, one young man named Paul came up to me, and he was so bothered. He was distressed. He was coming unglued and he kept asking me, is what you said true? Why hasn't anybody told me about this? I didn't know I was in trouble with God. I wasn't even sure there was a God, etc. And so that began a friendship in which uh, he would come and stay with Misty and me and the kids for weekends at a time, come to the church where we went and he was converted eventually. And when he was converted, he lived at the university, he lived with a bunch of other university students. They rented a building together. And he said, one day he said, well, I'm going to have to find a new place to live. I said, why, Paul? He said, well, they, they said they don't like living with me anymore. I said, well, what'd you do? And he said, I started cleaning up, after, not just my junk, you know, he's a college guy. So that was a miracle. So I cleaned up my junk and then I cleaned up their stuff. I would clean the kitchen when it wasn't my turn. I would take out the trash. I would do nice things for them. And they got together and they had an intervention meeting and they met with me and said, we don't like the new Paul because you shifted the morality of the house. You shifted all the rules. We had an agreement. You just do your own thing and we'll do our own thing and everybody does their own thing and we'll be cool. But now you're going around and you're being thoughtful of everybody and it makes the rest of us feel bad so we would prefer you leave. So they kicked him out. That does happen. The changes in your life, when people ask what it's about, you tell them the truth that Christ told you to tell them. And there's a division created even in the home. I don't think there's any family in our little church that, especially if you consider extended family, that you don't have unbelieving relatives or unbelieving immediate family that sit right next to you and eat with you every day. I mean, all of us have examples of this where loving Jesus Christ created a divide that wasn't there before. And it's not easy. And some of us, especially for the parent, you love your children in a way that they don't understand yet. And when they reject you because they reject your king, it can be pretty costly. So my question is, do you understand what Jesus Christ is saying so clearly that you are not shaken off the course? It is so dangerous, as well as disloyal, it is dangerous to back off the truths of Christ to appease your adult children. 
to appease a spouse. Again, we're not talking about being a jerk and becoming some, you know, kind of monstrous legalist that goes around, you know, trying to beat everybody into a Christian mold. But we are talking about really following Jesus Christ, not just saying it and really loving what he says in his book and really trusting him enough to obey him. And if you are tempted to think that it would be better to please your relatives, your family, than it is to please Christ, I want you to consider something. The present division between the Christian and the unbeliever in a family is reversible. It can be fixed. There's still time. It's not an irreversible, unchangeable division. And how often have we seen one Christian in a family have a hard time because they love Christ, and then God uses their simple, changed life to bring the rest of the family. But remember that there is a time where the division between believer and unbeliever in the family will become irreversible. Luke 17. Christ talks about the judgment. He describes it in this way. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. We know in the other judgment scenes, we've got a lot of religious people in front of Christ at the judgment. And he says to some, you know, come sheep, my people, whom I knew as my people, come into this kingdom prepared for you from eternity. And to the others, he says, those of you that just were a bunch of talk, you come into an everlasting judgment. Moms and dads and husbands and wives and children and parents and brothers and sisters and grandparents and grandchildren. The division that there is now is a foreshadowing of an unalterable division that is to come. So for love of Christ and love of the person that doesn't understand you and following Jesus has created a gap between you and this unbelieving family member, do not do everything you can to kind of disguise the gap, the division. Because the feeling of not being right with you if you're following Christ, the feeling that the lost person has in the home that I'm not right with so-and-so, or they used to be my closest friend, uh, you know, I used to really enjoy being with them, but they're different now, and I don't quite like them the same way, and I'm bothered with it. That feeling may be one of the greatest evangelistic tools you have, that they would notice the difference. They come to church with you, but there's still a division. Maybe they pray a sinner's prayer. Maybe they get baptized. Maybe they join the Bible study, and they talk religious, but there's still a division. They are not what you are, and it bothers them. And if you hide that by a false kindness then you are removing a great evangelistic tool you have. And you may be drugging them by this false peace which Christ doesn't endorse until the day when it's too late for them to do anything about this gap. I had a friend when I was in seminary. He was younger than me. He was in college. And he, um, he was a really nice guy. Everybody liked him. And he was madly in love with this one girl and he was a lost guy, even though he was a church member. And we, I mean, we knew each other at youth group. 
And uh, so when he turned 18, he just moved in with her and they lived together for a number of years. And eventually he was really converted and he moved out and he said, I love you. I want to marry you, but I'm going to follow Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus. I'm not going to keep living with you and I'm not going to get married to a person who won't follow Christ. And she got so angry and said, I don't want to be married to a Christian. I would hate being married to you if you're going to be a Christian. So they divided. Probably have told you about this person before. It was such a stark example in my mind. He got in an accident at work, broke his leg, and he was laid up in the hospital for like four weeks in traction. And I went by and saw him. And she went by and saw him. And when she came back, she'd been out of his life for months. It really just... You know, it tore at his heart. And he told me one day, I, I'm, I'm going to go back with her. And I said, has she become a Christian? No, she, she's definitely dead set against Christianity. Then don't go back with her. Well, I'm going to marry her. I said, but you said these things before. Now you're changing everything. He said, yeah, I know, but I'm just, I'm so lonely. I've been stuck here for five weeks and like, I've just got to do it. So he, I pleaded with him. And one of the things I said to him was, if you say to this young lady that Christ is worth everything, Christ is worth her giving up her life. And then you say to her, well, I want you more than Jesus. And so I'm going to ignore Jesus's words and I'm going to take you instead, please you instead of Christ. Then I said, you know, in the years to come, as you try to do evangelism and you try to invite her to church with you, she's, why would she listen? I mean, you already proved that she was a bigger deal than God. She doesn't need God. She's bigger than him. So he ignored that and he married her and he tried to invite her to church and she wouldn't go. And in a couple years, she left him for another guy. The divide between you and the unbeliever, even when the unbeliever is someone you love more than you love your own life. This divide, if it's because of Christ and Christ likeness, it is a kindness of the Lord. And if you love the Lord and you love the lost family member, you cannot, you cannot adjust Christianity to hide the gap. Well, it comes down then to the last couple verses in verse 37 and following, where it mentions three times a different phrase. So three times we saw this, I came to, I did not come to, but I came to. Now, three phrases again, not worthy. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Well, let's bring this to a close. Because really all these verses do is they, they go deeper than any of the other costs that have been mentioned up to this point. Deeper than going to prison for Christ. Deeper than losing a loved one's, you know, friendship for Christ. It goes all the way to this. In following Christ, a Christian, a disciple, is someone whose loyalty to Jesus is complete. And their love to Christ rises above every other love in their life. And they refuse to say... That um, I love Jesus, but then put the preferences of family members above him. We've been talking about that. 
But they also refuse to say they love Jesus and put their personal preferences above him. I've known many religious people that say, oh, I love Jesus more than I love my spouse. And I think, well, yeah, I, I almost believe that, even though I didn't think they loved Jesus. But I think, but you, you love yourself more than you love, love your spouse. There's probably a long list of people that might come before your spouse or your kids or your parents. We're so self-absorbed. We might think, well, I love Jesus more than them. And following Jesus means I don't have to care a bit about them. Like the Pharisees, you say, loving God means I don't have to help my parents out anymore. So saying that you're a disciple of Jesus cannot be used as an excuse for just doing what you want to do, but doing it in a religious setting, you know. So Christ comes to the ultimate cost. You are not worthy. That is, it is an impossibility for you to be a follower of Jesus if you are going to continue to put people or yourself above him. Because ultimately... You will come to a situation where a loved one says, I'm going this direction. And you know that Christ's commands require a different direction. And you look at the two and you think, I just can't pay the cost. I can't risk it. I need Jesus plus this person's, you know, affirmation, love. And so instead of trusting Christ enough to risk it, you go with the family member, you go with the loved one. I have to have them. And you'll have to deny Christ. And it won't just happen once. I mean, that's what we say. I've just got just this one thing. And then I'll witness to them. Then they'll become Christians. And then we'll get back on the right track. It will become a pattern where every time a costly decision comes up and someone else that you care dearly about that's important to your happiness says, you going with me? And you say, yeah. But really, it's about us, isn't it? We don't really love anybody that much. It's that this person is for my happiness. This marriage is all about my happiness. These kids are all about my happiness. And, you know, they're all like little idols that serve me and promise to make me complete. And when Christ says, are you willing to trust me and walk on a path of obedience, even though it looks like you might lose every one of those? And you say, yes. It's not easy, and you may walk that path crying quite a lot, but yes, Lord, I'm yours, and you follow Christ. And so the last verse, pretty clear, if you save your life now, you lose it eternally. If you lose your life for Christ's sake now, you, you get it eternally. What's he talking about? Well, in other passages that say the same very thing, instead of the word life, it says yourself, and that's a pretty easy to understand thing. In following Jesus Christ, the happiest life is that you lay down your rights to yourself at his feet. The happy life for the Christian is not to have Jesus plus your favorite sin or have Jesus plus your favorite special little thing just for you where you still control. It is for Christ to have everything. And if you say you're following Christ, but really you're holding on to the reins of power and control and you're still calling all the shots, but you're doing it in a very religious life. You don't have any real life. There's no life there. And eternity will be nothing but a 
but an exclamation mark on that, that you did not have life in Christ ever. But if you trust him enough to risk it all, and you're really following him according to his word, then there is happiness now and forever. If you think that a Christian is different from a religious person sitting next to you in the same church, nodding your head at the same things, if you think the difference is something like this, a merely religious person is a person that lets Jesus come into the house. So he knocks on the front door, they unlock it, he comes into the living room. A little scary. You let him go to the kitchen, that's a little scary. But what about all those rooms and closets in the house and you have the keys and you say, um, no, those are kind of my special things. You get to have this part. I'll just keep these small rooms. Is that okay? And we say, well, that's just the church person. But what about a real Christian? We say, well, a real Christian, he goes and she goes and she unlocks more doors than just a religious church member who doesn't really love Christ. And so you go unlock your kids' rooms and their closets and you unlock the bathrooms. And, but you still keep a few rooms, maybe just your room, maybe just your closet. You say, well, no, 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 this is mine. You can have so much more than that person gives you. But I still, I'm going to keep this door locked. That's not the Christian life. I don't mean that a Christian can't act that way sometimes. Here's the Christian life. The Christian hands the keys over and says, I'm not in charge of which room gets opened. They're all yours now. You're mine. I'm yours. You're my king, my life, my all. And it's not easy. But because you haven't lied to me, every morning I hand you the keys. You can go anywhere you want. Are we good ambassadors for Christ? One of the evidences will be that our loving and humble words and witness often will disrupt the peace and cause division wherever you are. But you understand why it has to happen. And you understand why it is that the king is worth it, no matter the cost. And you understand that it is the most loving thing you can do for those people. And you don't alter course. Well, may the Lord help us. Jude closes the book with that popular doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.